Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. And goodbye to our junior hires and our, our, our um, elementary school. We love having you guys in here. Can you say goodbye to them? All right. Bye, bye guys. Um, oh, man. I love just everything about our service so far. I could go home. I feel like um, Sam already preached. <laughs> Worship happened. We're good. Um, but I do believe that God has something for us. And I am I'm really excited about this James study. I feel like, you know, I have the great privilege of, of studying God's word so that I can break it open for you. And I, you know, I, I literally had a dream, like a really good dream last night, that, that I was standing up thanking you for letting me have the privilege of preaching. And, I was, and in my dream, like, you know how you have those dreams? Are you just like so happy in your sleep? You're just so happy, right? I was like, ah. And so anyways, I dreamt about you all last night. That's what I guess I'm trying to say. And so thank you for letting me do this. And, and the privileged part of it is, is it gets to like, you know, you get to let it sink in. You, you, those of you that teach anything, you know that you have to learn it first before you can teach it. Otherwise, it's just kind of blah, blah, blah. And so my, my prayer for my life personally is that I'm, I'm learning this. And as I'm learning it, we're learning it together. So I'm excited about James because it, it speaks where I'm at and it speaks to all of us where we're at in our humanity because it's a book about practical wisdom. If you were with us last week, I gave kind of an overview um, of the book. Um, some of the things that are important to remember about it is that the author is, uh, is ex- most, it's, it's widely accepted, although debatable, that it is James, the brother of Jesus or half-brother, right, because, you know conceived of the Holy Spirit and all, but um, that James, half-brother of Jesus, James is listed throughout the Bible in, in, um, in various ways, but one of the ways that's important to understand him is that he was among Jesus' brothers, among Jesus' family that was like, hey, you know, uh, kind of calling him out. And in Scripture, in the Gospel, we see that he was a bit skeptical, not a bit, but straight out skeptical of his brother. And I can only imagine uh, and it, it really helps us understand that Jesus was really a person, right? He was a human. And so for James, seeing his brother and going like, what's this all about? But then evidence from Corinthians shows us that after the resurrection, this James on fire, um, he literally believed in Jesus and to the point where he didn't just kind of believe, but he emerged and rose in, in leadership. Uh, most scholars believe that he was the primary leader of the Jerusalem church or like the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And so what we gleaned from that last week is that he went from skeptic to just full-on pillar. And he was known for his wisdom, and he was known for his humility, and he was known for his, his knobby knees. Jack, he had like knee paddling knees, you know? He, he was one who um, had literally the nickname Old Camel Knees, right? And we read from a historian that said because he was often alone in the synagogue, just kneeling before the Lord and praying for forgiveness on behalf of the people. Another one of his nicknames was James the Just, right? So he, as we're going to read in, in this letter throughout, that he was an advocate for just causes, and, and he spoke forth that justice. And in, in our day and our time, man, it is good to know that God is the author of that, and he cares about it, so much so that it's written in, in the canon of Scripture. And so here's the, that's the big picture. It's a letter that was written early, somewhere in like the 45 to 49 AD range. And why that matters is because if you think about it, it's pretty close after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So these are early followers who are now getting this instruction from this book. It would have been, you know, 10 to 15 years prior that Jesus had, had crucified. Think about your life. What were you doing 10 or 15 years ago? It doesn't seem like that long ago, does it? Unless you're like 10 or 15, then, then it seems like a long time ago. But, but it doesn't seem like that long ago. And so for them, they had now had some time in this, this new faith, right? And, and this faith in this movement of Christianity, this movement of Christ followers had, had become um, really controversial. It had blown up to the point where in order to be associated with Jesus meant to be associated with pain, suffering, difficulty, trial, tribulation, persecution, and so forth. But 
to Sam's point, that regardless of what was, what was happening in their lives, James is calling them to believe in these promises of God that are about freedom and jubilee. And so there is so much for us in this book. So if you're into it, I'd still like to preach. Is that all right? Let's do it. If you're not into it, you know, it's all good. Nap time, whatevs. So um, I w- what I want to do today is with the time that I have remaining, I just want to get as far as I can through this chapter, just read it, and I have some observations. And most importantly, as we read God's Word, we want to look at it, we want to observe it, see what we see, and then we, wanna, um, we want to interpret it, and then we want to apply it to our lives. That's the, that's the dream. That's how we read God's Word. And so that's what I hope to do with you this morning. So here we go. Um, the first part of the letter says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot to be said, and I'm going to hopefully not get stuck in the weeds or um, stuck on, on rabbit trails on, on every little line. But as it is with God's word, every line is just packed with meaning. And even this very, this very first greeting is packed with meaning. James could have said, James, the main dude, like the guy, I am so, you know, I am the leader of the whatever. You know, as people give introductions of themselves, it's intended to make the listener want to listen, right? It's intended to lend credibility to the message that they have. James' credibility is, I belong to Jesus. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, without going deep into it, just the way that he framed those words and the way that he put that phrase together, he was literally declaring that I belong to Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is God. That's what he was essentially saying. And that, that meant something. You know, that meant something for this once skeptic who used to look at his older brother and go, huh? Who now goes, whoa, my older brother is the son of God who I am a servant of and who is not only the son of God, but he is God. So you can figure out all the theology on that uh, as I continue on. But the, the, the message he says here is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, not um, lacking in nothing. Um, you, so w- w- what I want to say about this is this. When I read that, and we've talked about it already, count it all joy, um, I'm not going to go into maybe things that I've previously said, but just in its simplest form, I started... Th- thinking about why we would count it joy, why we would count trials joy. Clearly in the, in the scripture, it says that it's for a reason. Like that one of the things I like to say, I got it from C.S. Lewis, is God doesn't, he doesn't waste pain, right? He doesn't waste pain, he does use it. But the reason that, another reason that I thought why we were to count things joy is the bottom line is we just do things better when we're joyful, we do things better when we're joyful. Do you believe me? Okay, just for funsies, just fake a smile right now. Just do it. Do you, you feel something physiological? There's science to it. There, like When you smile, something happens. You can literally trick your brain by smiling. In fact, you can even do other things. Like you can hold your hands out and smile. And like you could, you could sort of feel like, you could just feel stuff happening. It's not weird new agey stuff. It's just, it's, it's literal brain stuff that's happening. That when, when you smile, when you laugh, when you experience joy, it releases dopamine and serotonin. Is, is that the right one? Ser- serotonin, excuse me. As I said, it didn't sound right. Serotonin. Dopamine is like, dopamine is your dope. It's like, it's the, it's the pleasure hit, right? So like other studies would show even the reason why you like frantically go through the scroll on your phone, you know, like you don't even know why you're doing it. But, and when you see that somebody likes something that you posted, you're like, ooh, that feels good, you know? And it, and it, it keeps you doing something, right? But dopamine has a, has a better and more uh, effective um, goal in our lives, the way that God created us, is that that, that dopamine, it, it also gives us like this like energy, you know, to, to do things. It's from the, the part of our brain that helps us do things better. The, um, so it's connected to our pleasure and reward. The serotonin impacts, listen to this, in part, and this, I'm not a neuroscientist, so, you know, but I did read too much about this, and I didn't just read, like, random articles. I read um, medically reviewed articles. I just want to go on record. 
But the serotonin part of it, it helps us um, to process our emotions, right? So there's chemicals in your brain that help you process your emotions. There's chemicals in your brain that, that send out these, like, these neuro, um, neuro charges that go through these receptors in our body and tell our body what to do. Are you all tracking with me? So, so to count something all joy is to our benefit. And, and to count it joy helps us to do it with more energy. It helps us to do it better. It helps us to do it more effectively. There's scientific study about it as well that, uh, for example, happy workers are 12 to 20% more effective, right? So if you're happy at your job, you do, your productivity is 12 to 20% greater than if you hated your job. Doesn't seem like too much of a leap to believe that. The same thing is true about students, right? So if you're, if you're joyful in your study or if you're happy about the things you're studying, you're going to retain more, you're going to be a better student. So count it all, joy means something. By the way, you don't need science for any of this, right? Because if you just think about it on everyday terms, like how many of like sports nuts are there here? Okay, you guys know way too much about sports. Like, why should you know what the batting average is of the 1977 guy from the Angels? Why would you know how much this person's getting paid? It's not wrong. It's not bad. It's actually fascinating. But how much do you know about tax law? <laughs> well, you know a lot. But, but most of us. Because we're not like, ooh, taxes. Oh my gosh, did you know that the government has this new way that they're going to get more money out of you by doing this? So fascinating. It started in da-da-da-da-da. But you could give a full history of, of a, a certain athlete and follow their career all the way through. And you can, you can follow this in, in many different ways. It doesn't, I'm not just picking on, on sports people. Car people are the same way. Health people are the same way. Like if you're into your diet, your exercise, you know what, um, I don't know, what thing you can eat does what thing and what muscle does what. It's just like you didn't go to school for it, but all of a sudden you're so excited and you just know a lot about it and you're hungry for more of it. So my, my whole point is, it is so counterintuitive for us as human beings to go, I want to count joy, uh, I want to count it all joy when I go through difficulties, when I go through hardship, I want to count it all, it's counterintuitive, wouldn't you agree? And the Bible is amazing, and this letter, to James, letter from James to the church is amazing because not only does it tell you that this is, this is going to help you be more productive in life, more productive in the trial, because it is to an end, but it also shows you how you can do it. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. Um, one of the, the words I think that's important to look at is that word steadfast. Um, your Bible might have a different, similar translated word, but count it all joy. This is verse two. My brothers and sisters are included when, um, I feel like I have to give this all the time. In ancient languages, there are terms that are translated literally brothers that include male and female. There are other times where it only means males, other times where it only means females. This one, it means male and female. And so all of us are on the hook for this. And it says that we're to count it all joy when we experience various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Everyone say steadfastness. steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. Who wants to be perfect? Right? I don't know if I do, but I'm called to it. This perfection isn't like to be a perfectionist, but it's to be made complete, right? Complete in Christ. It's different than what we would think of with um, being perfect. And it says, lacking in nothing. The word steadfastness is um, from a Greek word. And um, the Greek word that, um, sorry, I have to find it in my notes. I had it here just a second ago. Oh, here it is. Um, it's hupomone, right? And so hupo and mone, two, two words that are, um, it's two words put together. The first word, hupo, uh, means underneath, right? Underneath. The second word, mone, I always think of mone, mone, but it's not that. Mone, <laughs> mone um, means to stand or to bear up. And here's the idea. When you read the Bible, you're going to, especially the New Testament, the, the metaphors are going to be either military, mostly military or athletics, right? So in a Greek world, you know, things like the Olympics and the different um, races and things that they were big into physique, big into athletics. And so this is from the athletic realm. And the word steadfast is the ability to, to stand up under the weight of something, right? It's this. It's, it's what it takes 
to develop the endurance to run a marathon. You don't just run a marathon by positive talk, right? You don't just go, I'm going to run a marathon. A marathon's going to be awesome. Um, I can do a marathon, right? You could be a hearer of that, and, and people could tell you, oh my gosh, you have the physique for a marathon. You should run a marathon. And you could believe that, but if you don't have any of the ability to bear the weight and stand up underneath the pressure of what it takes to run a marathon, you are going to fail miserably. Would you agree with me? And this is what the Bible is saying, that those who understand the saying that we, I grew up with that I don't hear uh, much anymore is, no pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. In fact, if you're looking for a, a title for today's message, it would be that, like pain and gain. The pain isn't just because it's miserable or because God's mean or he wants to torture you. It's the pain that it requires to bear the weight that's on your back, to be able to stand, to develop the muscle that it takes to endure so that you can continue on. And he loves us enough to put us in those circumstances. How many of you would say that you played sports, you had a good coach? And I had some good coaches. I also had some not so good coaches. The good coaches really helped you believe that you could bear under that weight. And not only did they help you believe it, but they actually put the weight on your back. There is no way that I would wake up one morning and on my own be like, you know what, I'm just going to run a couple miles uphill. Like, I think that'd be cool. Some of you are crazy like that, but, but me, you know. And then after I do that, I think we're going to, I don't know, put some plates on a big steel bar, put it on the back of our necks and just walk around with it. <laughs> you want to do that. That would be cool. Right? And after that, I think I'm going to take a little break, come back and just run a bunch. Just run sprints and, you know, get yelled at. Do that. Sounds cool. I just wouldn't do that on my own. And I wouldn't call a friend and say, you want to do it with me. (laughs) But I had some good coaches that made us do that stuff. And they told us that we could do it. And then in the end, we're like, oh, my gosh, I just did that. Right? And in the end, we did it because then come, you know, a couple of days down the week, we're going to be running up and down the field nonstop getting hit. And we're not going to die because of it. Why? Because we had developed some of the endurance and the muscle that it took to be able to take the blow and give the blow and have fun and do the game. Right? And, and so when I read this, I... I, I don't want to like oversell it, but I just, I feel like it's important to make this point really crystal clear because it is counterintuitive to embrace pain for the gain, but not only is it counterintuitive, it's a contrary message that's being taught today. The message that's being taught today is not, um, you know, no pain, no gain. It is run from pain. Feel good all the time. That's the whole point in life. Don't let anyone tell you to do something you don't want to do. That is a dangerous message. And James gets to it in just a little bit. He tells you, you really got to be careful. Because the stuff you want to do is not good for you. Not everything, but you know what I'm saying. And so, so he tells us that when we're beginning to experience these trials, we have like the best coach on the planet. We have God the Father. We have Jesus who walked this earth. We have the Holy Spirit who's our comforter who walks with us. And so as we know about James, James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. There are all these sayings, and and they're sayings that we can remember and we can communicate. But how many of you lean into the faithful saying that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God who gives it abundantly without finding reproach? How many of you are aware of that statement? I am aware of that statement. I bank on that statement. I I pray that probably daily. I pray that when I'm talking with somebody, when I'm praying for them as a promise from God, as you shared with us, something to grab hold of. And I believe that God can give you just crazy wisdom that you, you just don't even, like, what, how did I know what to do? He can give you wisdom in parenting, um, no matter what the, the circumstance is. It's funny how it works with parenting. If you have one kid, you think you're really good at it because maybe some things worked, and then you go ahead and have another one, and the same thing for this one doesn't work with that one. Why? I don't know, but it requires wisdom, that God can give you wisdom for your family. 
That the same God who gives wisdom in parenting can give you wisdom in the workplace. That maybe there are these, these things that are happening in the workplace that's like, I don't know what to do. And you can say, I don't know what to do and complain about it and get frustrated about it. Or you can go, God, there's this promise that you have in your word that you give me wisdom and I, I need it right now. Man, there are stories that I could tell from, from people that I have heard who are executives in companies and, and solving problems that they had a dream the night before that, that they're thinking about this complex problem and God shows them in a dream, hey, this is what you should do. Or they just get the idea and they know and they attribute and, and give God the credit for giving that wisdom. So I believe all of that. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that. Like, how am I even saying this right now? I don't even know. I'm experiencing it currently. No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> but, but here's, here's what I'm going to say about that. I believe all of that. But I also believe something even deeper about what I'm saying about pain and the counterintuitive nature of not wanting to get near it because we don't want to bear up under it is that when James is saying it, I believe he's saying it in context to the trial that you face. In the trial that you face, whatever it is, as that trial comes on, you're going to have human reactions to it. Oh, no, this is it. If, if that trial comes into your life at a particularly weak point, it's going to be, oh, no, not again. That trial is familiar of something that you had happened before, and it was really difficult. It can just grip you with fear. I've experienced these things. And I know that you have, too. So when James is saying this, I don't think he's saying, come on, just be happy when you're going through hard stuff. He's saying, no, no, no. Count it joy because when you're joyful, you do things better. When you put a smile on your face, you have the ability to endure way more than you would with a frown. That smile also helps you to, to speak and think differently about your situation. But when it's really hard and when you're like, oh, no, it's happening. Go to God and ask him for wisdom in that situation. What is wisdom? Wisdom is applied knowledge. Uh, I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon. If you know it's Charles Spurgeon, it's worth putting up on the screen. But this particular quote is so good. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. Can I get an amen? Amen. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. <laughs> Just good, right? You got to hear it with like a British accent too. It's even better. Um, but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. That's what God does for us. God, I know what this is like. I know what this broken situation is like. I know what this test is like. I felt something similar before. I know this. But God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom now to know how to apply that knowledge, to know how to apply your word. And then it says that God is faithful to do it. In fact, it promises that he has, that he will, excuse me. It says this in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. By the way, as you're reading James, you're going to go, that sounds a lot like Proverbs, but you're also going to go, that sounds a lot like the Beatitudes. That sounds a lot like Jesus. What does Jesus say? Ask, and what, what will happen? Yeah, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And, and it reminds me of that, but it says, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It'd be cool if it just stopped there. Then verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So why did James have to get mean, you know? What he's saying is, um, when we go to God, we don't go to God in unhealthy fear. We don't go to God in like, ah, if you kind of want to do this. But you go to God in faith, is what it says. The faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The faith that comes um, that brings stability into your life. And so when we go to God and ask him for wisdom, we don't go in instability. We go in stability. And so the, the first thing that happens... When, when we experience trial, we don't know what to do. We ask God for wisdom, but how we ask is important. 
And so you might be thinking, well, I don't want to be unstable when I'm going through a trial, nor do I. None of us do. So how do we bring stability into our life? Everybody say, how do I bring stability into my life? I'm glad you asked, Christian. I'm going to tell them. I, I do believe that, um, that stability comes in knowing the truth about you and the truth about God. Okay? The truth about you and the truth about God. You can create a list as you read God's word. Every single time you read it, you could ask yourself those two questions. Lord, what do I need to learn about me and what do I need to learn about you? And, and, and you could, for the rest of your life, have a list that's going to go on and on and on. And what you're going to find in that list is that there's weaknesses and failures and, and flaws on your side. And there's perfection on his side. And what's beautiful about those two lists are that he welcomes you into relationship, that he becomes your strength. So like Paul the Apostle said, when I'm weak, then I can become what? Strong. It's that reversal, that amazing reversal of the gospel. And so when I read about that and I read that uh, uh, if, I, if I ask and I don't ask with faith, I'm a double-minded person. I'm unstable in all my ways. I long for stability. So what do I do? Um, as, we, as we continue on, I want to just share with you a couple of the truths that first I see about myself or about you. And when I say me and you, I'm not getting into your business. I'm saying in humanity. And then I want to share the good news about the truth that I see in God. So the first part that it says, uh, if you jump down to verse 9, it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flowers fail, uh, falls, excuse me, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Context is really important as you read this, that the first century, so you, if you have, if God has blessed you and you have financial wealth, does that mean that you're lowly and that you should feel ashamed of that? No. God has blessed you with that. How you steward it is, is very important. But in the first century, for the, the ones that would be reading this letter, it is already assumed that the one who has great financial wealth has gotten it because they oppressed somebody to get it, okay? Our context is different. Some people have received great wealth by an inheritance, or they've received great wealth by hard work and God's blessing and, and through the joys of giving, that the more they give, the more that God seems to be giving back to them. So it becomes like this hilarious fest of like, okay, here's more, here's more. I can't keep getting more, right? The Bible, the Bible speaks to that. So, so I just want you to understand as we're reading it that there's, there's some context going on here. For the, for the original reader... The rich one equals the oppressor, the one who put the thumb on the other. There's a huge gap in the first century between the rich and the poor, and there's not much in between. What do I take away from it if I'm trying to interpret it in today's present moment? I would say this. The truth about me and the truth about you is that your present financial situation or your status in life, whether rich, poor, or somewhere in the middle, does not define who you are from God's eternal perspective. Okay, let me say that again. Your present financial situation or status in life, whether rich, poor, or somewhere in the middle, does not define who you are from, in, from God's eternal perspective. And the question that I put is, isn't his eternal perspective the most important one anyways, right? Isn't that the one? And so when I, when I read that, and I read the truth about me, I, I, and I try to understand what brings me stability. I've got to go, you know, a bunch of money doesn't bring stability. Sure, it brings some of the luxuries. It brings some of the like relief and maybe some areas that maybe the one who needs more doesn't have. But that isn't the thing. I've spoken with, with people. I've shared a story with a friend the other day of, of, of somebody that I knew that, that was very, very wealthy. And I caught them in a, in a down moment. And in, in their down moment, they said, yeah, everybody thinks that I'm just so happy and so stable, but the reality of it is, is I'm worried that everybody's stealing from me all the time. My marriage just fell apart. I've got all this responsibility that came with this, what is supposed to bring security that isn't security for me at all. Some of you are like, well, I want some of those problems, you know? But, but hear my point. It's how you steward what God has given you, right? He gives one this amount, gives another that amount, but we're all meant to be content and, and still give. 
out of the abundance of what God gives us. So as I, as I hopefully make this point is that our, our situation, our circumstance in life, the country we live in, the city that we live in, the house that we live in, the, the bank account that we have, this is not what produces stability. It does contribute to some of it, but it's not what produces that inner stability that God promises. And so um, Jesus said we're supposed to store up our treasures in heaven and not sacrifice everything to have it all here on earth, right? You guys get that. Wealth alone does not equal peace or the absence of difficulty or pain. Um, I put in my notes here that trust in wealth or the perception of security that comes with it does not compare with the gain that comes through enduring until the end. When you, when you hear that part that um, James was saying, he, he says, um, it kind of sounds a lot like Isaiah. And I'm going to read to you Isaiah 40 verses 7 and 8. It says in Isaiah verses um, 7 and 8, chapter 40, that the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. It gives us this picture of how temporal that we are. But then it gives us what is enduring, what does present for us a place of stability and security, the one and only thing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but what? But the word of our God will stand forever. My security, my gain, my growing in love, is, it comes by growing in love and in trust to God, right? My security, your security, our gain, it comes by knowing God more, by trusting him more. By believing in his eternal pro, uh, promises. This makes us stable. This is why you can meet someone from the developing world that has nothing. And yet has so much confidence and stability. Who has endured the weight of so much on their back. And not given up. So that they can run the marathon of life. And so if you, like, like the apostle said. I can have a bunch or I can have a little. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, so if you were to throw a million at this person from this developing nation who, you know, maybe had nothing, they would steward it really well. They would go, great, God's blessed me. If you were to take it away the next day, they would go, okay, cool. I know what it's like to live over here. That is true stability. Would you agree with me? And this is what we long for. This is why the pain is worth the gain. Let me read on. Um, Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast or who bears the weight knowing its worth is the gain, who, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The truth about us, another truth about us is that what we do and how we do it on this earth matters in eternity. The crown of life is not, is not um, you know, like everybody gets one when they go to heaven. Here's a crown of life. It, it, it speaks to, that was the imperial butter from when I was a kid. Um, the, the, the crown of life is another athletic analogy or, or metaphor that speaks to the reward that happens at the end of the race. The one that runs the race well, the one that runs with endurance gets the reward, the wreath or that crown that's upon their head. So what we do here and how we do it, how we bear up under trial, how we endure stuff, although it might not feel like it matters, although we want to find a shortcut or quit or whatever else, it matters in the long term. Let me read on because I'm running out of time, so I just probably need to talk faster. <laughs> Verse 13, let, this is a really good one. <laughs> let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. This is a contrast between a trial and a temptation. But each person, when he is tempted, is lured and enticed by his own desire. Everyone say own desire. Own desire. This is how it works. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The truth number two or three, whatever truth we're on, let's call it number three. Number three truth about you that you got to be keenly aware of is that you have a sin nature. You were born with it. It was like a genetic defect as a result of the fall. And that thing is going to pull in areas of your life that will lead you to dark places. Uh, I love fishing. 
and you use certain lures for certain things, right? So this talks about like how sin lures you when you're tempted. Uh, the, the enemy knows. You know, you don't, you don't take like a, a rooster tail and tie it on the end of your line and fish for marlin, right? You just don't do that. Anyone fish? Didn't know that? Okay. Christian, you know. Daniel, you know. Nicholas, you know. You don't use, and, and it's just in the same way. The enemy's not going to tempt you like he's going to tempt me. He's not going to put certain things before you. They're lures, right? That's not the sin part. The, 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 the sin part is grabbing hold of it and letting it take you through that process that ultimately produces death. You've got to learn what the lures are that attract you. That's the truth about you. Because though, if you identify those lures, you're going to figure out what's making you unstable. If you want stability, you learn how to be like the smart fish. Yeah, I know what that is. I see the line on it, you know. Yeah, that, that lure is no good. You learn that stuff through test and trial and adversity. You strengthen your spirit, man, to be able to, to, be able to with, uh, withstand temptation. Is this making any sense? So the truth about you is not such great news. It's the same about me is that, that we can't blame God for our temptations. He's not the one doing it. He's not the one doing it. If we were to be honest with ourselves in those times that we've fallen into sin and we're miserable as a result, it was because we went sniffing around for it or we put ourselves in environments where that lure would work. When we've walked in victory, we've kept ourselves in environments that we'd be able to spot that lure really quick because we're around other really smart fish. And those smart fish are like, "Uh uh-uh, as a rooster tail, you're a trout, you don't want it. So you can't go it alone. That's what we do. And so if you understand that, that truth about you, you have more stability in your trial. And then when, because you know what I've experienced in my life, when you're going through a difficult trial, um, the enemy still is so, he is so opportunistic. It's like going through a trial, let's go ahead and tempt them over here. Let's throw out whatever lure that they like. And I think that's why these are put together, but they're put together so that we're not blaming God and using the wrong tactic to withstand what the enemy is doing. We're getting stronger through the trial so that we can withstand the temptation because we're overcoming this flesh, but we're not doing it on our own. And this is where the news gets really good because we're done talking about the truth about us. Now the good stuff is to talk about the truth about God. The truth about God is that he is amazing. The truth about him is that as we read in 14, it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Listen to this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's a lot of truth that you can extrapolate from that one small passage. But the thing that I couldn't get away from is the greatest gift that God gave us coincides with our greatest instability and weakness. Our instability and our weakness is that we were born into a sin nature and that we were headed on a path of destruction and we were pre-wired to do it. And as we're heading on that path of destruction, God breaks into history through Jesus and brings a solution to our sin problem through Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting from the dead. This was just in their recent history as they're reading this stuff. And so when they're thinking good and perfect gift, they're reminded of the good and perfect gift of Jesus who brings stability and the answer to our sin nature problem. Don't ever tire of the gospel. Let it become so alive in your heart that you're, as the followers and the people of God, that you're remembering, yes, God gives so many blessings, but his good and perfect gift is Jesus. It's Jesus who saves us. And so the, the truth about God is that he doesn't tempt. He gives the gift necessary to overcome the flesh. He's not a tempter. He's an empowerer. God gives you the gift that's necessary to overcome temptation and to overcome the flesh. But let me just tell you something. The gift can't just sit there unwrapped. You can know all about the gift, but you're intended to know the gift. You've got to open it up. You've got to receive it and accept it into your life and live it. Live like you believe that it's true. And you watch the fruit come of your life. The second truth is that God only gives good gifts. 
And so if we're wrestling with God, why have you brought this into my life? We have to tweak our definition of good, that that good needs to relate to the author of good, not our definition of good. Does that make sense? God only gives good gifts. And you're thinking, oh man, is this a good gift from God? The answer is yes. If it's from God, it's good. It's for your good and his glory. And sometimes, again, we've got to tweak our definition of good. This is not easy stuff, and I don't, I don't intend to, or my, my intention is not just throw it out there as quippy little one-word sayings. This is stuff you've got to take by faith. But it's truth that we have to understand in our hearts and in our minds. Number three, God doesn't change. He's consistently faithful. You will never wake up and go, oh, sun didn't rise today. God must have forgotten. He will always be faithful to his promises. What he says is true. He, it says it right in there. There's no variation with them. There's no shifting shadows. He's not messing with you. He's not playing games with you. He's training and teaching you. He is the best coach. And so remember who he is in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the moment that you face. The fourth thing that I have written down is really beautiful and really important. That He does all this. He says that we're a kind of first fruits of all that he created. That God regards you and I very highly. There's a statement that somebody made that really transformed the way that I think about God is that, that God loves you, right? How many of you have heard that over and over again? God loves you. When somebody told me, not only does he love you, but he likes you. You got to love people. It's a mandate in scripture. Even the ones you don't like, you're called to love. And that's understandable that there are people who are unlikable, you know. But God isn't that way. He's not just loving you out of duty. He's loving you out of relationship. He is, he adores you. He adores you. And that's something that, that you could say with words, but man, when it's received in your heart, something begins to change in you that you respond to the love and the like that God has over your life with such passion and responsive love to him that you no longer want to sin. You want to respond to this call to holy living. You don't stop doing certain things because you know it's bad for you or someone from church might find out or you're going to get the bad feeling after. Your passion for God outweighs your passion for sin. This is what James is teaching us. And, and if anything, my prayer is that this begins to invigorate you to go, okay, God, help me to see things in truth. Help me to walk in these truths. So as you sum it up, and I really am out of time, and there's a lot more to say, but, but I think that um, the remainder of it, the remainder of the chapter, I'm really hoping that you'll read it because it's... I'll read it out here so we get it out loud. But, but the remainder of the chapter is after you understand and you know these things and you're willing to let the weight of that trial come into your life and you trust your good coach who's training you for the endurance marathon, when you're willing to do that, you begin to change your behaviors. Like I said, your passion for God outweighs your passion for sin. But then your passion for God also makes you look a lot more like Jesus. And Jesus was all about the... The kingdom of God, which makes sense to humanity in certain ways. In other ways, it's a confusing thing. But in these areas of justice and caring for people, it begins to make sense. And the remainder of the word here today, the remainder of the chapter, is about not just hearing and having head knowledge of what you know in Scripture, but doing something with it. And then it sums it up with such a Jesus-like statement where it says, Hey, you want to know what pure and undefiled religion is? Don't let your religion be worthless, right? Um, that is not necessarily like a, 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 a noble thing to say is like, I am, a, you know, a, I'm a very religious person. For, for some people, I'm a very religious person, especially if you hold your hands like this for some reason. I have no idea why I did that. But that could mean um, I only hang out with other people who hold their hands like this. And, and I, um, I don't do bad stuff ever. You know, and, um, and I go to church all the time. And if that's what people think of for Christians, then that is not pure and undefiled religion. That's like a robotic form where Jesus said things to people like that. Like, you guys are a bunch of whitewashed graves. You look all good on the outside, but inside you're a mess. 
I'm not saying that necessarily about you. I'm saying that about this thing in Scripture. But he says, you want pure and undefiled religion? It's to action. Do the hard stuff. Love the unlovely. Take care of that widow. Take care of that orphan. And by the way, keep yourselves unstained by this world. Let me read it for you so that you don't just have my paraphrase of it, but you have the scripture and then we'll close. Are you good to give me five minutes? All right. It says, know this, my beloved brothers. This is verse 19. Every person should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That is a sermon all in and of itself. If you get that down, you get it all. If you can learn to be Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, this is, the, the, this is that practical call to holiness. Have a passion for this. Therefore, put away filthiness and the rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word but not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks, after he looks at himself, he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. For the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Listen, I know I've, I've shared a lot but in this last moment, I just want to take some time just to let it soak in. Um, I, I would like if our worship team could come back up, if you guys wouldn't mind. Um, I think that if you're all here, yeah, cool. If, if we could do the, um, that song, that Jubilee song, I think in really claiming those promises, I think that would be amazing. But as they're coming and as you have a moment to process through a little bit of what was spoken... Listen, anytime I'm fully aware that anytime, you know, a lot of words are spoken, there's certain things you're hanging on to. All of it is just seeds that God is sowing into your heart. But as we draw it into a place of application, you might ask yourself, are there circumstances in my life where I'm being called and stirred by God's spirit to, first off, choose joy, right? Choose joy. Scientifically, to trick my brain Biblically, to believe in the promise of God is greater than my present circumstance. So I choose joy. I find it, I find joy even in the darkest trial. So are we being called of the Spirit to do that? Secondly, in my present circumstance, am I in need of asking God for wisdom? When I, when I can't see and when I don't know what to do, when the weight is so heavy on my shoulders where I literally just want to tap out, I just want to give up. This is your moment right now to apply God's word and say, okay, God, I want to do this in my flesh, but I'm asking you now for wisdom in belief of every promise that you say that's true. I'm asking it with stability. Are you called to find deeper stability in God, to receive the good and perfect gift of salvation? Maybe you've toyed with the idea of following Jesus. Maybe you've half-heartedly done it, but maybe this is the Sunday where you go, okay, this kind of makes sense. I want to go all in. Are you called to know your identity before God, um, that you're seen as a first fruit of all that he created? That first fruit is a sermon in and of itself, but that your life is so valuable and so worthwhile that it's wanting to be shown to everyone. Look at what just grew. Now, in the hands of God, even as we give unto God, God wants to give you out into the world to do his will. And so, so I don't preach a sermon on a sermon. Let's take some time. Um, to process these things and let the Holy Spirit speak to us as we hear this last song. Feel free to stand if you'd like. Feel free to kneel if you'd like. Feel free to come to the altar. Um, this is your place. But let's just respond to the Lord and let's let his word settle over us this morning.
started in singing today, your grace is enough. I pray that no one person would take this in a condemning way, but Lord, each and every one of us would have eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us, whether it's convicting us of sin in our life and the way that we got there, whether it's helping us to know how to be more stable by knowing the truth about ourselves and the truth about you, or whether it's choosing joy and realizing that we can bear under the weight and that that weight on our shoulders is making us stronger so that we can be steadfast and endure. I just speak blessing and hope and the full, the full flood of the fruit of your spirit over each one, God, as they walk through this week. May they walk through it with their heads held high, knowing that they are a kind of first fruit of all that you created, that you love them, you like them, 
and you're training them for eternity. So bless them, I pray now, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. 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 God bless you.
sorrow comes to steal the joy I hope When brokenness and pain is all I know Oh, I won't be shaken No, I won't be shaken My Remember 
fallen from grace, but you took all our shame and nailed it to a cross. Mercy, mercy, as endless as the sea. I'll sing. So.、Uh-huh.